Six words. Six little words. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's not how many words that you're going to hear from my mouth. So sorry if that uh, is disappointing to you. But but six words. I, I I don't. I think the I think the average speech is in human speaking is about a hundred words a minute. I'm not sure if I exceed or fall below that. And normally in preaching. Um, but I, and I know the, the humans have the ability to comprehend hundreds of words every minute. This is why husbands, you, you know, you can be sitting on the couch watching the football game and your wife is talking to you and you say, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. You get it. You get it all. No, you don't get any of that. Don't, uh, you don't, don't buy that. Uh, but but we, we, have, we have that ability. But here we have six words that change everything. There are six words in the Greek language, which is the language in which the New Testament was originally written. It's six words in every single one of your English translations. There are six words in this passage that you could make the case that Christianity stands or falls upon. Because if these words aren't true, then other words don't matter. It is finished, what Jesus said from the cross. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. He is risen. It it could be a hoax if this isn't true. Six little words make all the difference. What are those six words? You're just going to have to wait. John 10. Um, Up until this point in John 10, we we have Jesus has been using this these figures of speech. He's talking about a shepherd walking into a sheepfold or a sheep pen and calling out sheep by name and leading those sheep out of that pen into pasture. That's the story that Jesus has been unfolding and teaching uh, the people through that. And he's, he's call, And in this story, He calls Himself the door to the sheep pen. And He calls Himself the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. And He claims sheep from the Jews, but He says they're not just from the Jews, not just Jewish sheep, but I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And they must come also. And, and He states His mission given by His Father to lay down His life for His sheep and to raise it back up again. And he states the goal of all that, that there would be one flock with one shepherd made up from all the peoples of the world enjoying eternal life together. So he, this is how Jesus has been talking in John 10 up to this point. And, and, and because he's used somewhat veiled language and these metaphors of sheep and shepherds and, and all, the, the people aren't connecting all of the dots. They see, they get some of what Jesus is saying, but they don't, they don't see the full picture. But but his words are plain enough that the the veil of Jesus's godness, his deity, is lifted partially, so they see enough to to divide over him. And so you have this divided response in verses 19 to 21. And this is true, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. Wherever Jesus goes, wherever whatever he says, whenever whenever he speaks, whatever he does, there is division. It's it's true. All, all the time in Christ's life and ministry. But you see it again in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And Ben mentioned these words that he has the power to, that he'll lay his life down, then he has the power to raise it up again. I don't know if you think about that, but dead people can't raise themselves from the dead. I mean, even in that context, God is the only one that can do that. And so what is Jesus saying of himself then? So many people, verse 20, said, then said, he has a demon. And is insane. Why listen to him? 
Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So already there's this, there's this confusion and a division about who Jesus is, what his identity is. Is he sent from God? Is he the prophet? Is he the Christ, the Messiah? Or is he demon possessed? Is he under the control of the devil? Or is he just a madman? Is he crazy? And so, between verses 21 and 22 of John 10, we have this break, and there are there is a time break. There's about three months passed between verse 21 and 22. So now it's late December. You remember we were at the Feast of, of, of Booths, or Tabernacles, in Jerusalem. This is where uh, about 7 to 10 of John has been taking place. And, and so, this is like October, September, October. Now we're in December. And so for weeks, this debate over Jesus' identity has been festering and the division between people is just deepening and deepening. People are still just divided over Him. And so we see that because it all comes to a head here. Jesus says six words and, and, and the, the Jewish leaders, they just snap. They come unglued. They, they, they've had it. And they get ready to execute Jesus. They have weapons in hand, as we saw in verse 31, ready to kill him. And he ends up, as we'll see, he ends up slipping away because it's not the Father's time for him to die yet. But after he says these six words, I want you to think about this. We're, we're just halfway through our study of the Gospel of John. And at, at the end of chapter 10, Jesus' public ministry of teaching is finished. He says these six words and he goes off the radar except for coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. But then he retreats again. And so this is the turning point. This is the big moment. And the six words you've probably figured out by now in, in verse 30. It's this. I and the Father are one. That, that's a game changer. And Jesus doesn't mean God and the Father God, the Father, and I, we're tight. We're besties, or whatever the new term is for that. We're, we're, we're on the same page. We, we're, we want the same thing. That's not all Jesus is claiming there. And, we, and, and, and Jesus here is know exactly what He's claiming. This is why they're ready to kill Him. He's claiming to be one in essence with God, the Father. Claiming to be God Himself. This is nothing new in John's Gospel. If you've been with us from the beginning, this is how it all started. John 1.1 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is distinct from the Father, so He's not saying He's one person with the Father, but he's, he's, what He's saying is He's fully God. There, and this is the doctrine we call of the, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is, which is mocked by unbelievers and which is just confounds I mean it, we struggle as believers to understand and grasp this and we will for all eternity but what we have scripture clearly reveals there is one eternal God and that one eternal God has eternally existed in three distinct persons God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit and in a way though that does not compromise that oneness and so this is the core of Christianity brothers and sisters I and the Father are one. This changes everything. This has everything to do with your life today. Don't think that this, this, 
doctrinal uh, statement, this, this proposition that Jesus makes is detached from life. He's going to show you that it has very mu- is very much relevant to you and what you're going through right now today. And so if this is true, that Jesus and the Father are one, and it is, then what difference does it make? And that's what we'll see this morning. Because Jesus and the Father are one, there are these seven realities that we'll see. And the first one we've already seen and already made mention of, and it's this, is that because this is true, Jesus' identity will divide people. It's going to cause division. Look at verse 22. So we can continue on. At that time of the, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So it's cold, rainy season in Israel, and so he's under this kind of covered, uh, portico. Uh, this is one of the remnants of, of Solomon's temple, which was eventually destroyed, but this is probably part that remained, and, and the new temple was built around it. So you have, but, but this little time market, Feast of Dedication, it's winter. Now we, that, that sounds probably like a little incidental detail to us, but it's not, it's important. Now if you're, you're, if you're not a Jew, and most of you probably are not, you, you probably miss this. But Jews would not. To say the Feast of Dedication, it would bring something immediately to mind. This is not a biblical feast, so you think of the Feast of Passover and these... Biblical festivals that God ordained. This is not that. This is a traditional festival in Israel. It's a celebration of something that happened some 160 plus years before Christ was born. And so there was a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And and he just wreaked havoc in Israel. This guy was arrogant. He loved himself. I mean like crazy he loved himself. He gave him that, himself that name, Epiphanes, which means God manifests. This is how he viewed himself. And so, and he also loved all things Greek. He loved Greek art and philosophy and, and culture and sports and religion and everything. And so, so he wanted Greek culture to dominate in Palestine, to be dominant in Palestine, which meant that he had to scrub Judaism out in Jerusalem and in, and then in that region. And so in 170 B.C. he conquered Jerusalem and he went on and he just desecrated the temple, God's temple. He killed a, slaughtered a pig on the altar of God and he smeared the blood of that pig throughout the temple. And, and, he, and he set up this altar, this, this, this uh, statue, this idol to Zeus in the temple right there. Did away with all the festivals in, in Israel. And so the Jewish people, they were just demoralized. And this was the, this was his goal. This was Antiochus' ambition. But a few years later, there was a group of Jewish priests that began meeting in secret. And they were led by this man, Judas Maccabees. And, 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 and there, under, the, under his leadership, they, they revolted and they were, they were able to regain independence. And they, and they, and they reinstalled temple worship and, and, and so the feast of dedication that, that is referred to here in verse 22, it's a, it's a celebration that, that was established to mark the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. And so, so this is what you need, this is why it's important. Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple, a few feet from where that pig was slaughtered, during the feast of dedication. And so there's this buzz in the city. And they're celebrating a time when Jews drove Gentiles out. 
But this is what I want you to see. Do you, do you understand the tension here? Because what, what is the reality of life in Jerusalem right now? Who's in charge? Rome. There's a fortress, Antonio's fortress, which is built higher than the temple walls so that the Romans can look over the temple and make sure everything's in order. They can keep an eye on things. Rome has their thumb on Jerusalem and on Israel right now. And so, so this is, this is the reality. So nationalism is soaring at the feast. Tensions are high. Tempers are flaring. And it's in that context, is this longing for deliverer to set them free again from the Gentile nations. In that context, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if you've not been with us through our study of John uh, along the way, if this is a, or if this is the first verse you ever read in the Gospel of John, you might be tempted to think, this, isn't this a wonderful little moment? I mean, these people huddling around Jesus and saying, please, please instruct us. We want to know. Are you the Christ? Just, just tell us. That's not the case at all. It says the Jews gathered around him. That's a very tame translation of that word. It, it really means he, they encircled him. They're, they're barricading him. They're trying to trap him. This is confrontational language here. And they question him. They're, you, you understand this. There's two, two ways to ask the same question. I mean, there are more than two ways, but... You get, we're, here we are in political season. You get somebody that comes up to you and sticks their finger in your chest and they have a scowl on your face and say, who are you going to vote for? And you know there's only one right answer for them. <laughs> and it's the name written across their shirt. Um, that's a very different question than someone coming up to you and saying, who, who are you going to vote for this fall? That, that one question is, is, is a trap. It's, it's intimidation. That's the goal. Or manipulation. And the other, it's genuine. It's, it's, it's inquiring. It's, it's wanting to know what you think. And, and, and it's a genuine question. Well, these Jewish leaders aren't saying, hey, we're willing to, we're willing to, to, to believe in you, to bow before you as our Messiah if it's true. That's not it at all. They're wanting to, they're wanting to get him. They're wanting to trap him, trip him up. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what's in the heart of every person. We saw this in John 2, 24 and 25. He knows they're not seeking answers to sincere questions. So, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. <laughs> We've been through this before. This is deja vu all of God. I've told you time and time again. We've seen this throughout John. I told you and you do not believe. The problem isn't one of ambiguity, needing more information, the problem is one of dogged unbelief. You, you, you won't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now Jesus is going to get to the answer to their question eventually. And, and there are going to be six words that say it all. But first, he's not talking about his identity. He tells them about their identity. They're not his sheep. They do not believe. 
Even though Jesus' words and Jesus' works, they clearly witnessed to who He was. This is one-two punch of His words and His works. None of that resulted in their believing. It only resulted in them hardening their hearts further in their rejection against, of Jesus. Because, why? Because of who He is. You, this is the same today. Jesus, the good man, He doesn't, he doesn't cause division. Nobody has a problem with Jesus, the moral example. I mean, he makes the cover of Time magazine and, and everybody wants to learn the lessons we can learn from, from the moral, the great moral example, Jesus. That's not a problem. Jesus, the Bethlehem baby, that's cute. Jesus, the human sacrifice, no problem. Jesus, Jesus, the religious guru and teacher and, and gives life principles, that's not a, that's not an issue with people. But Jesus, who is one with the Father, that always is going to cause division. That's a line in the sand that every person is going to have to divide over. And, and you proclaim the biblical Jesus today. You proclaim the biblical gospel. And, it, and you can expect division. Some will believe. Others will refuse to believe. Nobody will be neutral. And so this is the first thing. If because Jesus and the Father are one, there will be division. When he is proclaimed. Second, because Jesus and the Father of one are one, Jesus' sovereignty guarantees success. Guarantees success. Saving success. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Period. There's this contrast here. The Jewish leaders, not sheep, don't believe. Here, my sheep, they believe, they're believers, they follow me, they hear my voice, they follow me. And there is, brothers and sisters, there is great mystery here. And I will not solve it right here today. We're, we're plunging into the depths of God's sovereignty over the salvation of, of lost sinners. And, and we are responsible to believe in Jesus Christ and the invitation is sincere but salvation is of the Lord. It's by His doing that we are in Christ Jesus. And so if you expect me to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility today, I'm sorry. It's just, you're, 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 you're going to have to wait till somebody else preaches here or something because it's not going to happen. And, and I would give you a caution. And you know this. If you've been exposed, if you know this, this precious doctrine, and it is a precious doctrine. It's nothing... I am embarrassed by. It's a delight. And this is, it. This is what Jesus is saying. My salvation is guaranteed. That is a good thing. But, but this is the caution. We do not know who the sheep are. And we do not know among those who, are, who do not believe in Christ, we do not know those who are not sheep. We, we, we don't know the other sheep and, until they believe. Jesus is the shepherd. And we have to trust Him. Our job is to proclaim Christ. To proclaim the word of Christ and so that they can hear His voice and, and they can respond and believe in Him and follow Him. But I would say even to you today, have you, have you put your trust in Christ as your Savior? Have you believed in Him? If, if, if not, you can today. I don't mean like later when we have some special part of the service. I mean like right now, today. Jesus died for your sin. You are a sinner. God is holy. You are a sinner. You stand, uh, you are separated from God because of your sin. But Jesus died 
to bridge that gap. He died to take the punishment for your sin that your sin deserved. He stood in your place. He, he died in your place. And, and, and He defeated death and He rose from the, from the grave and He lives and, he, and yet He offers this gift of salvation to all who believe in Him, to all who rest their confidence in Him and what He did to atone for sin and to, 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 to satisfy God's punishment for your sin. So your sins can be forgiven, so you can be given eternal life. And all you, you just trust Christ and you can do that now. Talk to God and, 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 and confess your confidence in Him alone. But, but this is the point. This is for all of us. And I would say before, if you, if you, if you would like to talk with anybody, if you talk to me, talk to those that are sitting around you. We, can, we would be glad to talk with you, pray with you, and answer any questions you have. But, but for all... If Jesus is one with the Father, this is the point, His sovereignty guarantees the salvation of all of His sheep. See, we saw it in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And in verse 39, that, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that He has given to me. And so ultimately, the basis of your salvation rests upon God, not upon you. That's a good thing, brothers and sisters. Because this is this, and this leads right into the next re- reality. If, you're, if, if my salvation was ultimately based upon me, then I could undo it. <laughs> if I could secure it, then I could lose it. If, if, and I could lose it by my sin. I could, 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 I could, but, but if my salvation rests on the fact that the Father gave me to Jesus before the foundation of the world and that Jesus freely gives eternal life apart from anything that I can do, then this is this wonderful assurance that I could be confident that Jesus and the Father will guard my salvation for eternity. That's great news. And that's the third Third reality, because Jesus and the Father are one. Third, Jesus' sheep are safe and secure. Safe and secure. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You don't think that the Trinity has any relevance to your life? This is, this is what Jesus is saying. A.W. Pink, he says, No stronger passage in all the Word of God can be found guaranteeing the absolute security of every child of God. I mean, these are precious, powerful words, brothers and sisters. This is a wonderful promise that those who believe in Jesus will be kept secure for eternity. Will you suffer as a believer physically? Yes. Will, will believers be persecuted? Absolutely. Will they be martyred, die for their faith? Without question. I mean, we, we, the youth were at camp and we worked through First Peter with our speaker who preached through First Peter. It was really good. But this is one of his points right away and it was right on the mark is that, that the normal Christianity is not what we live. Normal Christianity is exile Christianity. It's, 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 it's living persecuted. It's always being the minority. Always being oppressed. That is normal throughout world history. That's normal around the world even today. We are not, we in America, 
by God's grace and His mercy, don't live the normal Christian experience. I mean, I know there's persecution. I know it comes in different ways. I'm not saying we're completely void from that. But I, I'm just saying this isn't normal. But, but even if we find ourselves in tremendous physical danger because of our allegiance and our identification with Christ, our souls are untouchable. We could not possibly be more safe and secure than we are. Because Jesus and the Father are one. And He drives us home in a very powerful way. I was thinking of, this came to mind, this illustration. And for any carpenters, woodworkers out there, I know we have some. I don't know if Nelson's here today. I don't see him. But he would be the one to explain this better. But I've learned about clenching a nail. So if you're in, I'm a woodworker, not so much a carpenter, but particularly in rough carpentry and some old-time woodworking, you, you clench a nail. Basically, you drive a, long, a longer nail through two pieces of wood so that the, the, the tip of the nail protrudes on the other end, which is not so, something you normally do. But then you clench the nail, you bend the tip of that nail, and sometimes in woodworking you bend it all the way around and you actually push it back through the wood. So, it's, so basically, a normal nail is just straight and it can slide out over time and it wiggles and it gets torqued around and stuff and it can slide out. But this basically locks the wood together in a much stronger bond. And, and that's what I was thinking of as, we, as you read verses 28 to 30 here. He says, it's just this boom, boom, boom. I give them eternal life. That's the first nail. And they will never perish. Clenched it. Verse And then he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the second nail. And then I love this. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Clenched it. Two clenched nails here. We're secure because we have this eternal gift, this, this, this gift that we've been given, eternal life, and it's a gift that's received by faith, not because... Not something we deserve. Not something we earn by our works. And it is by definition eternal. It will never, ever, 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 ever perish. And we're also secure because we're held in the hands of God the Father and God the Son. I'd like to see a thief try to break through two omnipotent layers of protection. Jesus says it's not going to happen. And he, and he reinforces it even more. He says of his Father, He is greater than all! He's greater than all! There's no power in the universe greater than God the Father, than His Father. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to see. Your salvation is not fragile. It is not... It's not... You're not walking on thin ice if you've trusted in Christ. You are anchored to bedrock. The Father, the Son... Hold you. You have the gift of eternal life and you will never, ever perish. Your security is not dependent upon your performance. When you fail, when you sin, and you do, if you are truly in Christ, God will discipline you as a loving Father. So, so, and it's for your good that you might share in His holiness, Hebrews says, Hebrews 12.10, but He will never withdraw His love from you or cast you off. That is a wonderful assurance. But if you if you won't listen to me, listen to Charles Spurgeon. Um, now he's in in this quote that I'm going to read. He's answering the charge that well, if we're if we're eternal secure, if we if we advocate for once saved, always saved, then it's going to result in more sin for Christians and 
And he says, he replies to that charge, he says, Shall I come, listen to this, shall I come to your house and tell your children that if they do wrong, you will cut their heads off? (laughs) Or if they disobey you, they will cease to be your children? Who would say that? That's so cruel. If I were to propound that doctrine, your children would grow angry at such a slander upon their father. They would say, no, we know better than that. For rather would I say to them, my dear children, your father loves you. He will love you without end. Therefore, do not grieve him. Under such doctrine, true children will say, we love our ever-loving father. We will not disobey him. We will endeavor to walk in his ways. That's good. But better than Spurgeon and certainly better than me, listen to Scripture. This is another passage in Romans 8, 8 passage you know well, but just listen to it in light of what we've just read. The, 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 the certainty, the safety and security that Christ promises. Romans 8, verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? How, 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 can, I, how can I believe that? And it goes on. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your, for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Is there physical danger? Yes. Spiritual danger? No. No. In, in all these things he doesn't say from all of these things, but in all these things, in danger, in distress, in nakedness, in sword, brother, that is the normal experience of the Christian. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> oh, we sing song in Christ alone. Um, uh, let's sing it. Let's sing one verse now. I've got the words on the screen. I was debating whether to do this, but it's, uh, we're just going to sing one verse, but this just drives us home, and maybe that would be helpful to us. No guilt in life, no fear in death, This is the power of Christ. Jesus says, I am one with the Father. You can expect division because of who I am. You can 
be guaranteed the success of your salvation because of my sovereignty as, as that one. You can, you, you can know that your salvation is, is completely and eternally secure. And then the fourth reality that comes because of this is that Jesus' ministry, His life, it then becomes a mirror of the Father. It mirrors the Father. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. What is their response? Kill Him. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? The Jews answered Him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, we know that they understand what Jesus is claiming for Himself. They, we, we see it by their violent response. They, they hear blasphemy, they hear Jesus making Himself out to be God, and so they're ready to execute Him. But Jesus says, my, my works, they validate my claims. My, my works are the Father's works. I'm only doing what the Father gave me to do. I'm only concerned about what the Father cares about. And so we saw this back in John 5, verse 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Himself all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. This is the point. Jesus is making this case. Here, these Jewish leaders, they prided themselves on their knowledge of God. They were the keepers of that knowledge. They knew God better than anybody else in the world. But Jesus is... is poking them and saying, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. If you want to know what He cares about, if you want to know how He works, if you want to know what, what, what that looks like, look to Jesus. Jesus mirrors His ministry, His works. They mirror the Father because He's one with the Father. He's not, he's not just some, some out here on His own trying to do some things that would, would look good for the Father. No, He is one with the Father. He only does what, does what the Father does. So His life, His ministry mirrors the Father. Fifth, I've got to accelerate here. Because Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus is the unbreakable Word. He is the unbreakable Word. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. And if, and if He called them God's to whom the Word of God came... And Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of Him who the Father has consecrated, set apart, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So he's using this, I know it's just, maybe, I don't want to lose you here. He's using this kind of rabbinic form of, of, of argument here to defend his claim of deity. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And he quotes Psalm 82, which in Psalm 82, this is kind of, this condemnation of these corrupt judges in Israel. Judges were kind of the, the leaders of Israel in the absence of kings. And, and so, so here, these, these judges, they're to act as God, under God's authority in their administration of justice. But they didn't. And, and so the psalmist, though, he refers to these judges, these human judges, as gods. Because, again, they're not because they're divine, but because they're acting in, in, as in that role that God has of judging. And so Jesus, again, He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If, if those corrupt judges could be called gods, 
How much more should I, consecrated, sent by God, by the Father into the world, be called the Son of God? And then he says in verse 35, he makes this little parenthetical remark, and Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture can't be broken. God's Word is unbreakable. His Word points to Jesus, who, who is the unbreakable Word of God. And I just think of this. Jesus is one with the Father. And so the, the, the Scriptures that these Jews so prided themselves on their knowledge of and, and that they're trying to use to attack Jesus, Jesus is the author. And it points to Him. And so every, and everything He says as the unbreakable Word of God is, 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 and here it is even recorded for us in Scripture. And so He, he quotes this unbreakable Word to, 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 to support His unbreakable claim, I am the Son of God. And that only makes sense. That only works if Jesus indeed is one with the Father. See, that's it. Because He is, His claim is true. Six, because Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus' invitation is open. And it's sincere. It's a genuine offer. Verse 37, we, we see this. But, so, so they're about to seize Him, they're about to kill Him, but Jesus makes one more plea to them. There's still opportunity for these who oppose Him, who want to kill Him. There's still opportunity for them to believe. There's still opportunity for you to believe, friend. Verse 37, If I am not doing the works of the Father, of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. And this is... I know this is, again, the wording may trip you up. This is the mercy of Christ here. Even if you can't grasp the full, my, my words and the fullness of my identity, at least grasp what you see in my works. Perhaps that little bit of knowing can, can grow into further knowing and understanding of who He is. And remember, this is John's whole purpose in writing. He's recorded these signs, these miracles, these works of Christ in order that we might see Jesus and believe in Him. Jesus is pointing, just see what I've... Let my works be a testimony to you. Observe the signs. But verse 39, there's no faith. Again, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. And you think the story's over. The opposition, unbelief, just seems to be having having its day. And, and, and John could have stopped here. He could have made a quick transition to Lazarus in chapter 11 and we wouldn't have missed anything, it would seem. But that's not what he does. And he shows us something very important in conclusion here. And it's this, finally. Because Jesus and the Father are one, seventh, Jesus' mission cannot be thwarted. It will not fail. We have a scene change, so... You have this scene in Jerusalem in the, in the temple there and it's anger and it's violence and it's threats and, and he's having to kind of sneak away and save his own skin and so that's one scene and then we, then we cross the Jordan and it's a totally different scene. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. John, had, the Baptist, we call him, he'd been preaching, pointing to Jesus Christ for years and Preparing the way for the Lord. And verse 41, And many came to Him. And they said, 
John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love this little snapshot. I mean, I, I missed, I, I, I love studying the life of John the Baptist, but John's ministry was so unpretentious. <laughs> he was not after fame. He was not after the spotlight. He, 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 just, he just wants all the attention to be on Jesus. And, he, and he, his whole ministry is simply to point people to Christ. So when Jesus came, that's all John has done is point people to Jesus. So then Jesus shows up. He's there. He went to where John had been preaching for all those months and years. Well, of course, verse 42, and many believed him there. Oh, many were born again to eternal life. Many of his other sheep came into the fold. Many believed in them there. And this is, this is what I want you to see. Jesus' mission will not fail. The end of, end of verse 39, it, it looks so bad and they're, they're seeking to arrest him. They have stones in their hands ready to kill him. But he escaped. It's not time. He has, there's more. He's doing the Father's will. There's evil men, even religious evil men, cannot stop him. He must lay, his down, lay down his life for his sheep in the Father's time. And he will bring other sheep into his flock into one flock and with one shepherd. It will happen. It's going to happen. Just a few applications of this final point for you today, and then we'll go to the table. One thing, you, you may never live to see the impact of your witness for Jesus Christ. This is just a John. But you, but you should live to faithfully point people to Christ anyway. I mean, John did not live to see these people come to believe in Jesus. He prepared, he prepared, he prepared, he preached, he pointed, and then Jesus shows up and they believed in him. But his witness was a key factor in their believing in Christ. I just, I want that to be of encouragement to you. You have people that you've prayed for and have shared Christ with for maybe years and decades, but, but you don't know the impact of that witness. All of that sowing of seed. Second, I just observe how hard the human heart can be apart from God's grace. And such, this is where we were, brothers and sisters. It's God's mercy that our hearts are not, that this is not us. These Jewish leaders, they had, they had more than enough reasons to believe in Jesus and yet they're dead set on killing Him. They had seen so much more. I know if, they, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. We hear that kind of... But they saw all kinds of miracles. Unbelief isn't just... It's not just doubt. i am just got questions I'm trying to figure out. That's, that's one thing. And that's, that God can use that searching and, and, and to draw people. But this unbelief is dug your heels in. I will not believe. And this is, this is the human heart. And when you get opportunities to, to tell people about Jesus, this is why you have to pray. You have to beg God for Him to open their eyes and to soften their hearts to receive the Gospel. Prayer is not, is not uh, a tangent in evangelism. It's crucial. We've got to ask God to, to work. Third, if some reject your witness, and we've kind of alluded to this already, if some reject your witness, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep sowing the seed of the gospel, pointing people to Jesus. He has other sheep. They will hear his voice. They must come also. They will be made into one flock with one shepherd. Six words. 
Six little words, and they make a huge difference. I and the Father are one. And you know, it's, it's because of those six little words that six other words that are uttered by Jesus later in the Scripture are so loaded with meaning. And that's what we're about to come and to do now. It's this. Do this in remembrance of me. It has no meaning if this isn't true. But because it's true, this means so much to us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, would you help us, God, to enter into this. To do so with a full awareness, God, of what we have in Jesus Christ. To see the great demonstration of love. As we're going to sing, by this we know love, that he laid down his life. So thank you for the broken body, the, the blood of Jesus spilled on our behalf, Lord. Help us to eat, drink, celebrate together with, again, full awareness of what you've accomplished for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.